of Pro Bono Happy Hour. I'm Elise Dorita. Today's guest is Mark DeGrossier from Womble Bond Dickinson. Mark spoke to us from Wilmington, Delaware, where he is based. We hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Mark. Thank you for joining me today. Oh, thank you for having me. So we are going to jump right in. Could you tell us what your early years were like and about your background? Um, sure. It's not all that interesting, but um, I was, um, there were Four, four kids in my family. I was the third of four, two older brothers and a younger sister. I grew up in Maine, mostly. My dad was in the Navy for the first eight years of my life, so we traveled a little bit. Um, but most of the rest of my life, I grew up in Maine. Um, and that's kind of that's kind of it. Uh, my mom and dad still live in Maine, and uh, my brothers and sisters, um, sister's still in Maine, and my brothers are kind of in Virginia and scattered about. So. You're actually talking to fellow uh, Northerners here from Rhode Island, so it's always nice to hear people from the area. Go Red Sox. <laughs> so how, when and how did you decide to become a lawyer? So I was, um, I guess it was in college I decided to become a lawyer. Um, like, I guess a lot of folks who went to law school, I, I was thinking about medical school, um, and then uh, a number of things changed my mind, including organic chemistry. I realized um, med school was not the way I was going to go. And then my... Um, Actually, there were some uh, personal issues in my family. My, they were involved with a contractor who was uh, not entirely honest, and that got them into the legal system. And that kind of got me interested in courts, and, and it all seemed very confusing, and um, I wanted to understand it. So that, that the combination of no longer wanting to pursue a, a medical career and you know, wanting to do something that I thought was um, useful and, and would be um, you know, kind of meaningful and also allow me to pay my student loans. That sort of drove me to uh, to go to law school. And so I took a couple of years off and worked for a few law firms as a paralegal in between college and law school in Baltimore. Um, and that further sparked my interest in going to law school. So all those things sort of combined to, to make me want to become a lawyer. So then what in your background slash personality sparked a passion for the pro bono and access to justice part of your career? Uh, I, I think I... I, I you know, part of it was, was sort of how I grew up, I guess. And I mentioned earlier that, that my parents had some issues with a contractor who filed for bankruptcy, of all things, and I wound up being a bankruptcy lawyer, and that was sort of more happenstance. But, but I think a lot of those things sort of made me realize that, um, you know, um, when people encounter the legal, the legal world and the court system, they don't always have the best understanding of what's going on. Um, and that sort of was, was motivating my desire to, to do pro bono and and, and work on access to justice issues. Also, going to um, the, I went to the University of Maryland for law school, and they have Ben Cardin program where you're required to do a semester of clinic work. And that also, um, Professor Milliman, I think, still runs the clinic there, or, or did. He was a, a great influence on me and many other lawyers coming through Maryland um, to really give them a passion for, for pro bono and helping out uh, members of our community who, who need some help in the legal system. I would say that it was, you know, of all things, I went to work for some big law firms and the lawyers I encountered at the big law firms, you know, for the most part, as surprising, shared that shared that same passion, I think, even at some large international firms that I worked at um, as a busy bankruptcy lawyer and working with busy bankruptcy lawyers, they all took time for the most part when they could, certainly, to work on pro bono matters um, and they really gave it the same passion that they that they devoted to their clients who were paying a lot of money for their services. So that also encouraged me to to work on pro bono as a young lawyer. That's great. When um, the kind of higher ups show that pro bono is important to them, I think it really uh, rubs off on everyone else in the firm. So that's great. 
Yeah, I think it's true for my, my current firm, and I, I run the pro bono practice here, um, run it. I am I'm chair of the pro bono committee, um, but also have some of my prior firms. I worked at Skadden, um, and I know that the lawyers there in the Wilmington office, there were a number of lawyers there who had a great passion for pro bono work, um, and they were also you know, very, very inspirational, I guess, um, for, for me to do pro bono work. So speaking of your current firm, how'd you get to Womble Bond Dickinson? Could you tell us a little bit about the firm and its recent uh, international merger? Sure, I can do that. I came to Womble about 10 years ago. Um, I was working for another kind of regional firm, um, and I liked what they were doing um, in the in the bankruptcy space. There were a number of partners here who had just started maybe a year or so before I joined. Call, a former colleague of mine um, came over from Skadden, and he said great things about the firm. So I came over and, and talked to people and really, really liked the people in the Wilmington office and the um, and the bankruptcy practice in particular. So I was excited about that. So that's how I came to to Womble, now Womble Bond Dickinson, then Womble Carlisle, Sandridge and Rice. Um, and as you noted, we had a um, wasn't a merger, it was a combination technically with a uh, with a British firm. So now we are known as Womble Bond Dickinson. And so um, so now we have offices on on both sides of the of the ocean. Um, with our with our um, colleagues over in in the UK, I didn't know if you had more questions about the combination. No, I think that's great. Um, so you mentioned that you're chair of the firm's pro bono committee. Could you talk about how you spend your time and what your role and function is? Sure. We currently have um, the pro bono committee um, and the pro bono chair run at least on the U.S. side run the um, pro bono practice with, with some assistance from our professionalism committee. And the pro bono committee consists of generally two, although if there's a larger office, a few more attorneys um, from each office, um, and myself as chair, along with some assistance from some, some support um, within the firm. Um, and we kind of run it on an office by office basis. And, and so as chair of the pro bono practice, I try to consult as often as I can with, with the members in each office, make sure they're aware of opportunities for pro bono in their respective areas, try to reach out and encourage people in those offices to, to do pro bono and to see what each office needs and what the attorneys in those offices need to, to allow them to do pro bono. Um, that would include financial support. The firm is very generous in supporting each of our offices and sponsoring events. Obviously, remember the Pro Bono Institute and, and, and other organizations, um, um, local and otherwise, supporting pro bono. So my, my role as chair is to facilitate that, to approve uh, new matters, to kind of interface with our general counsel, because there are, as with any client, um, ethical issues that come up and, and client issues that come up that we have to address. Um, so on a daily basis, I'm doing that. Um, I'm um, also trying to deal with budget issues for the pro bono committee. And as it's structured now, the chair of the pro bono committee, and as it has been in the past, has it also has an active um, paying client um, practice. So I'm trying to maintain my paying client practice as well um, in the bankruptcy here in Wilmington. So is there anything you wish you could be doing more of or less of in your role? I, I, I'm fortunate in that I can actually do um, legal work in court, which, which I enjoy doing. Um, and so... Um, there is an administrative burden, I think, in running a pro bono practice, especially when you're when you're trying to do the pro bono work at the same time. Um, probably less of that would would be um, would be appreciated. 
Um, but I understand that that's that's part of the that's part of the deal. Um, we have a budget. We have other things. Um, we have goals for um, attorney hours, and 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 um, want to make sure that we recognize attorneys for the great work that they've done. And so that all requires some administrative burden. So I would say probably less of that would be appreciated. But I have been fortunate in that I've been able to um, devote a considerable amount of my time to um, to actual pro bono clients, which which I find very rewarding. So how do you balance kind of the pro bono work and the chair of the pro bono committee with your uh, role as a bankruptcy lawyer? Sure. Uh, and that's come up a few times. I've spoken on panels and, and, and I've listened to other people talk about how they try to do it. Um, I, think it's, I think it's difficult and probably at the end of the day, it's not entirely possible to balance anything um, as a lawyer and, and particularly trying to balance pro bono practice with a paying client base is, is uh, difficult. Um, you just sort of, you just sort of do it, I guess. And um, if that means that you have fewer hours to, uh, to, uh, you know, go and solicit new clients, um, that just may be a cost that you, that you take on as part of, you know, the, the drive to do pro bono. Um, there's only so many hours in a day, obviously. And if I'm in court on today, I had a meeting with um with a, uh, a a father who's getting reunited with his son, probably um, his son is in DFS custody, is a baby in DFS custody right now. So all that stuff takes time. That's and and so I think it's difficult to balance all that, um, and I try to do that. But I think ultimately, you know, if I have to meet with a pro bono client and that means I can't go to a business development event, well, that's sort of the choice that I make. Um, in addition, I would say the the other challenge that I have is running the. Um, running the office here as well. I'm the managing partner of the Wilmington office. And so that, that is probably actually more of an administrative burden, frankly, than, than uh, the pro bono committee work. Well, you wear uh, many hats uh, at the firm. Yeah. And, and look, I think, I think a lot of our, our lawyers generally, and in this firm in particular, wear a lot of hats. People are very dedicated to the firm and we really enjoy each other and want to, want to um, see everyone succeed. So I think a lot of people here wear a lot of hats. And so I'm not, I'm not the only one by any means. So I want to pivot to more of how you run a pro bono committee. It's a hot topic that we have every year uh, when people ask us questions or at the conference. So as chair, do you have any advice on how to run a committee and what makes for an effective pro bono committee and a committee leader? Um, you know, I, I, I've only been doing it for a couple of years running the, the, the as chair of the pro bono um, committee. And before that, I was a member of the pro bono committee for, for several years. Um, look, I think everyone has a different way of doing it. The way that our firm is currently, um, we are expanding like a lot of firms are um, fairly rapidly. And so um, I, I've tended to make sure I had representatives from each of the offices on. I think, I think lawyers in the offices and in the regions have a better sense of what's going on in their particular communities and have more, certainly more of, of an opportunity to interact with the pro bono leaders in their respective communities. And I don't pretend to be able to do that, um, nor I don't have the time, and, and I don't think it's a successful way to do it. So I've, I've kind of given them given more autonomy to the, to the office leaders and just sort of stepped in to help when I can and to help them with sort of sponsorships, like I said, and to encourage attorneys um, in their offices to do pro bono and to make sure that those who are doing pro bono and doing good work are getting recognized for it. So I, I think mine has been more of a trying to let the offices um, work with their attorneys in their offices to see what, what is most interesting for them to work on um, and then to facilitate sort of kind of big picture stuff, again, budgeting, um, helping them with that, helping them if there are particular clients, um, and that's really a, 
a, a kind of a desirable thing to do if you're if you're working with clients um, on pro bono matters. That's 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 a really great thing. It just takes a lot of uh, organization to get to make those things happen. So I um, I think the um, long and short of it is is that I I've, I've let the offices kind of do their thing and just kind of giving them oversight and help when I can. Great. So you just touched on this a tiny bit. What have you found works best to incentivize and engage your lawyers to do pro bono work? Look, I think most most people, notwithstanding the general view of lawyers in in our in our world, um, most people go to law school with with noble intentions. Um, people want to pay their bills and things, but also they want to help help others. Um, and I think um, our lawyers are no different. They all want to help others. And and the issue that that they have and that I have and that everyone has is trying to find the time to do everything between family and community service and your actual client work and then pro bono. Um, and so the biggest challenge I've had is is trying to get folks to focus on pro bono, but understanding that they have all these other pressures and things going on in their lives. And, and so I have tried to, you know, encourage people to do it. Um, it can be very discouraging sometimes when you, you have these goals for yourself and most lawyers are goal oriented. Um, and you're not meeting them, whether that's your billable hours, whether that's, you know, whatever you think you should be doing in your community or your pro bono hours. And so I think in, for, as far as incenting, um, we have we have tried, like I said before, to recognize those in our offices who are doing doing great things in pro bono um, and to, you know, really find what what sparks a passion in, in the lawyers themselves. And again, I think it's in, an individual thing and an office thing. So we've tried to figure out what what really motivates people um, in their lives and then to try to find a pro bono piece um, that they can incorporate into that. I think that works best. But but also um, the firm has taken some steps to encourage them, especially among our associates, um, working on pro bono by giving them credit for up to up to 50 hours towards their, their bonus pool as billable credit. Um, I think that has been a help um, for some of the attorneys. Um, but again, it, it is a struggle sometimes to to um, get people incented to do pro bono work. Again, their inclinations are good, but um, I think time just runs out on people. Those are great tips and insights. So you are our very first guest from Delaware. Could you tell us what the pro bono and access to justice culture like is in the Delaware area where you're based? I, I sure can. Um, our, our, we have a very, uh, well, relatively small bar um, here in Delaware. And I know everyone says their bar is collegial, but ours truly is. Um, everyone knows each other. Um, there's basically one one street where everyone goes to the restaurants and so you see each other every day and that tends to um, get people familiar with each other and so it's not it, it, you're de definitely not strangers with the people that you see in court and I think that collegiality and sense of responsibility for the community carries over into the pro bono um, part of the um, our, our culture here in Delaware our judiciary has strongly encouraged um, the lawyers to do pro bono um, some of the judges will even call when there's a pressing need um, on some of the larger firms in town to, to, to step up, and, and those firms do step up. Um, as I mentioned before, I worked at one of the larger firms in town, and, and it was truly remarkable how much pro bono work um, that firm did and the lawyers in that firm did um, and still do. So I think, I think our, 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 our pro bono uh, commitment here in Delaware is very strong. We're, we're a small, tight bar. Um, we're divided among, amongst the counties. And so most of the um, attorneys are up in Newcastle County, which makes a challenge, I think, in the state to get uh, some of the, the southern counties, Kent and Sussex, um, to make sure that, that, that those pro bono needs are being met. And, and, and I guess like any other, any other state and all the other states, we are struggling to, to meet 
um, what is a, a, an astonishing amount of pro bono work that needs to be done. I don't think we meet nearly all of it. I think the latest statistic I saw was somewhere in the neighborhood of 20% of pro bono legal needs get met in the state, which I actually think, unfortunately, is very good compared to some other states. So, uh, so I think um, our, our judiciary, again, like I said, strongly encourages us to do, the pro, do pro bono. We see our judges all the time. They know who's in court doing pro bono, and they want us to do pro bono. And I think, I think that helps here in Delaware. So I want to shift focus on to your work. A few years ago, you received the firm's Irving Carlisle Pro Bono Public Award for your work protecting the rights of children in Delaware's foster care system, U.S. military veterans, and domestic violence victims. Could you expand more on this work? Sure. It's, there, there are a number of programs here in, uh, in, in Delaware that have been um, implemented by the courts and or by the, the state government um, to make sure that certain things that happened in the past don't happen again. And one of those areas was in foster care. Um, and, and one of the changes that was made, I think, a few decades ago was to implement a, um, a, a process where lawyers come in and represent children who are in foster care. And they also have non-lawyers who come in and they're court-appointed special advocates who will come in and represent those children as well. And the idea is that, that the, lawyers, the lawyers can argue on behalf of the best interests of those children in court. They can put on evidence, put on witnesses, um, meet with, you know, parents, um, relatives, potential adoptee, uh, 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 you know, um, couples who are, or, or individuals who may want to adopt children in foster care and kind of present evidence to the court um, and protect the best interests of the children that way. So that's one of the things that I do. Um, and again, I mentioned I just come from a meeting with someone in connection with that this morning. Um, and that's a very, can be a very um, rewarding experience and a challenging experience because you're dealing with children, some of whom have um, had um, a lot of trauma in their lives, and, um, and so it, it's it's a difficult thing to do sometimes, but it's also immensely rewarding. Um, the other things that I've done is helped out some domestic violence victims, and I say I've done it. People in this office, in this community, do this every day. Um, there's a program um, once a week where lawyers show up and volunteer to represent uh, victims who come into family court primarily um, to Get, get protection from abuse that they may be suffering from at the hands of their, their partners, spouses, relatives. Um, and so I've been doing that since, since I've been in Delaware basically for the last 18 or so, 19 or so years now. Um, and that's also very rewarding. Um, most of the time you're meeting with folks um, who, are, who are very scared obviously and facing a, a court system that they don't understand. And it's nice to be able to help guide them through the process, um, represent them in the court proceeding if they go forward. A lot of these things get dealt with through mediation, particularly if the alleged abuser has, has retained counsel. And you can usually resolve um, a lot of the issues through that mediation and get a consensual uh, protection from abuse order. Um, I think those, those, can be, those can be very helpful, particularly when children are involved. A lot of the times it springs from, the, the, a lot of the issues spring from um, issues with visitation and, and support. And that can be addressed at least temporarily through the abuse order. So it's 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 helpful in that sense. Um, it also obviously protects um, people who who are suffering from abuse as much as an order can, um, and gives them some comfort that they can at least call the police if if you know the the abuser is nearby and they can take steps to protect themselves and their children. So that's another thing that I did. I've, I've done a little bit with um, military veterans and their and their benefits as well. Um, that is a that's a tricky system that we have, and it's there's also an overall really overwhelming need for attorneys to help out 
um, with with veterans, particularly with the ongoing or the, the recently concluded, I guess, one war and the ongoing second war that we have. Um, there are there are a large number of veterans who who are coming back um, with wounds and some that you see and some that you don't and and they need to be able to get treated and 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 be able to get the benefits that we've promised them so that's that's rewarding as well and again that's something i've done a little bit of and the other thing that we have in delaware and i think in a lot of agricultural states we have immigration issues and there are programs here in delaware that have been set up to help children who are who are here uh, may have crossed the border illegally and are now here in Delaware, generally living with relatives, and to try to help them get status and and stay in the United States with their with their relatives. That is such a large spectrum of work, and I'm glad that you're doing all of this. Um, it's truly great. Yeah, and I, I, I mean, a lot of the uh, this is work that's being done by obviously not not just me. I'm not tooting my own horn. There are a lot of people in this office here who work with me, um, who devote a considerable amount of their time, really remarkable amount of their time to to helping kids in this community, to helping abuse victims. Um, I'm astounded every day by, by what, what my colleagues here do. That's really inspiring. So we recently launched a new segment on the podcast called Tell Us About Your First Time. Could you tell us about your first or one of your early pro bono matters that you've handled? I'm sure there were, there were a couple that were, um, um, I think, particularly rewarding. One, I, I practiced in Baltimore for, I guess, about a year. Um, with a firm down there, and I took on a pro bono matter. I'm not sure anyone knew I took it on, but I did. Um, there was a um, I was a first year lawyer and thought I could do anything, but there was a woman who was not getting her support, um, was relying on the state uh, for her benefits, trying to go to school, um, and she needed to track down the father of her child, um, who was in, who was fortunately was in the Marines. Um, and so the only reason I mention is because I. I it was resolved relatively quickly. I was able to, my, my brother was a, was, a, was a retired Marine now, but he was an active duty Marine then. And I called him and inquired how I could get a hold of this guy. And he put me in touch with his sergeant who I spoke to on the firing range, who called his poor private over and got him on the phone with me as he was screaming in the background. Um, and the private was only too happy to fill out the forms to get the woman her child support. So I thought that was a relatively easy case. It was a, a fun case and the, the the my client was able to get the support that she needed for her child um so that was all a good result i think except maybe for the private who got yelled at by a sergeant for a while he did fill out the forms though so that was kind of nice um when i got to delaware one of my early cases was a pfa um and one of the great things about pfa is particularly uh, as a protection from abuse case for young lawyers is that you get into court you get to try a case um, sometimes you're just there and you meet your client right before the hearing. But on this instance, I had an opportunity with a with a um, one of my mentors, really at Skadden, Rob Weber, who's still at Skadden, um, to work on this and to really prepare a case, to gather evidence, and then to argue in court with Rob on behalf of this woman who was being severely abused by her husband. Um, so that was another one that was that was really really uh, felt good when we were done. We we were able to get the order that she needed. I think for two years we got her support. We got her possession of her property, um, of their property, possession of the home, and so it was a great result. But but the the rewarding part for me was not only that the client got a great result, but that I was able as a second or third year attorney to go into court with a more senior attorney, and we we put on a trial and we, we ran that case. Um, and so that was, that was a very rewarding one for me. So great. So do you have any additional examples of pro bono cases that have been particularly meaningful to you? 
Yeah, there was another one, um, a landlord-tenant issue that I took on with, a, with an attorney at Skadden who's now a judge, um, and we we took that appeal on, a, on an evidentiary issue, of all things, in a landlord-tenant dispute up to the Delaware Supreme Court. So that was, that was great. Um, he argued before the Delaware Supreme Court, unfortunately unsuccessfully, um, but, but I think the client felt well represented and, and it was, um, was really um, professionally rewarding, I think, to, to go to the Supreme Court. I still think we were right on the, legal, on the <laughs> evidentiary issue, but that's how it goes. So could you talk about what's on horizon for the pro bono program um, and if you have new, anything new in the works and how has the combination provided any challenges or opportunities for you in the program, if any? Yeah, um, I, I think there are a couple of, of sort of hot button kind of global issues that we're looking at as a firm to figure out ways that we can address. One of them is immigration um, and, and tied in with that is the, the real um, devastating issues of human trafficking that come along with them. Um, Sort of illegal immigration and 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 that um, we are trying to figure out a way to coordinate efforts um, as a, as on both sides of the ocean on on those on that topic. Um, I think it is a challenge. Um, there are different. Com- I, I guess we're I guess we are two people separated by a common language, and that applies to our legal system as well. Um, they have a different approach in the UK than we do in the United States. Um, they have a more of a corporate social responsibility a- approach to things, and so. It's not so much a focus on, on legal work, although there is clearly uh, pro bono legal work that goes on in the UK, but it's a lot of community service and more of a holistic approach. Whereas in the United States, obviously, we're focused as lawyers on doing work um, for, for nonprofits and on a corporate on a corporate basis or in court uh, if you're a litigator or a bankruptcy practitioner. Um, but we're focused more on the legal end. So so I think I think it's been a bit of a challenge. I'm kind of tying that in there as well to coordinate those efforts with two similar but different approaches to, um, to pro bono and, and, um, and community service. Um, but immigration, again, is, a, is one that I think, I think we'll focus on. Um, there are a few, other, a few other kind of global issues like that that we are, we're focusing on. There are some nonprofits that uh, span, span the ocean, and so that's been um, interesting um, to try to figure out ways that we can you know, help more internationally-based organizations and nonprofits. Yeah, the conference the past couple of years, we've talked about like pro bono in the UK, and it truly is such like a different system that, um, I mean, the US lawyers might not necessarily understand or know, um, and it, it's really interesting. Yeah, I think that's right, and, and, and we have really uh, dedicated uh, professionals on, 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 on the UK side um, who I've spoken, who I have spoken with on a number of occasions, and um, you know, they, they, they really are committed to their communities, um, but there is a, it was a slightly different nuanced approach to, uh, to pro bono. So that's been, a, that's been a challenge. So if you had a magic wand, what one thing would you change about law firm pro bono or access to justice? If I had a magic wand, it, it, our, our courts already mandate that we have to take a certain number of CLE hours every year. Um, I have that requirement in Virginia. I have that requirement here in Delaware. Um, and I dutifully go and, and do my continuing legal education, and I find it very helpful, actually. I learn new things and get interesting developments in the law. To me, it seems that the courts, if they can mandate that I go to CLE as part of my professional responsibility, they can certainly mandate that I, as a lawyer, in exchange for having a license to practice law and to regulate, you know, we regulate ourselves, we, we commit whatever percentage it is, whether it's 1% or 3%, of our billable hours, and they can make it 50 hours a year, or whatever the number is. It seems to me that if I had a magic wand, and I could control that, it would 
it would be to make the court say every lawyer is required to do 50 hours of pro bono. That's the deal. And if you don't like it, you don't get to be a lawyer. I think that's really the only way we're going to we're going to fill that gap on the access to justice. Um, and so that would be my magic wand. We're going to close out on this final question. Who is your pro bono role model slash access to justice role model and why? Sure. Um, and I have a I have a couple of them. And as I mentioned, at each at each firm I've been at, there have been truly remarkable attorneys um, who have worked on pro bono a lot. One of them I mentioned was 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 my colleague and, and mentor, Rob Weber, um, who just devotes himself wholeheartedly. It was truly amazing working on that on that PFA case with him. Um, he's still at Skadden working hard there on behalf of corporate clients, but still dives in on pro bono. Um, he's represented some death penalty. Um, he's represented some um, defendants in death penalty cases in addition to folks here locally. So um, he is one, certainly one of my um, one of my kind of models or, or, um, or role models in, in pro bono work. Also, I think here at um, Womble, we've, we have a number of attorneys who really, really um, throw themselves into pro bono. One is uh, Jim Cooney, who has represented, uh, uh, again, um, defendants on death row and successfully um, had a number of clients released um, from prison, uh, exonerated. Mark Schammel in our in our DC office is another person who just throws himself into any case um, that 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 I have um, where the stakes are high. Um, also at Skadden, um, Tom Allingham, um, who I didn't get to work with on pro bono matters, but saw working hard all the time on First Amendment and other issues. Um, just a, he was a great role model, certainly to see a very respected um, partner at a one of the largest law firms in the world, just throw himself thousands of hours, um, some years into, into pro bono work. Um, and the last one is um, Tom McDonough, who runs um, the, the PFA program here in Delaware um, through Delaware Volunteer Legal Services, DVLS, which I sit on the board. Um, he has been a, a remarkable person to watch from my time as a younger attorney to now. Um, he shows up he was devoted to those clients um, who, who need it, who need help. Um, and, and every day he's there just doing the work that needs to be done down in the trenches here in Delaware. So um, those, those sorts of people are the ones that I really look up to um, in, in the pro bono world. Those are all great. Thank you so much uh, for sharing that with us and for joining us today. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. New and archive episodes of the podcast can be found on Apple Podcasts and YouTube. Be sure to subscribe if you haven't already. Please take a moment to leave an Apple Podcast review. It's quick and easy to do. We'd appreciate the feedback and would help make it easier for other listeners to find the show and expand the conversation about pro bono and access to justice. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, feedback, and questions to pro bono at probonoinst.org.